open your Bibles today, if you would please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And in our study today of John's Gospel, we are beyond that horrible act of the crucifixion as Jesus died on the cross. We're also beyond the time that Jesus went to the tomb and those two disciples who lovingly placed him there. We are now beyond the feelings of hopelessness and despair that the disciples felt when Jesus was crucified. And as Luke records, there were two disciples who were having a conversation about what transpired in the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus. And those disciples said that we trusted or we hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. But as we come to our message today, we're beyond that despair because we know that Jesus victoriously arose from the grave. He's alive today. And Jesus appeared to his disciples with words of comfort and assurance. The words that Jesus spoke, the words he spoke after the cross, what we'll read here today are very significant words. Often we talk about the words that Jesus spoke from the cross as being his last words. Many sermons are preached on the last sayings of Jesus from the cross. Just a few weeks ago, I preached, uh, it is finished. We talked about that saying. And after Jesus said that, he said, uh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And sometimes we talk about those as being the last words that he spoke. But those were by no means the last words that Jesus spoke. He did say much more. And what we're going to learn today is that Jesus said some very significant words also after the cross and after his, re- uh, after his resurrection. Now, with the resurrection, we do know this, that there was a new day that dawned. There was a, a new relationship that had begun. Salvation had been attained or obtained. Um, our atonement was fully accomplished. And so now Jesus prepares the disciples for what comes next. And what is next is actually the evangelization of the world. The job that Jesus gave us to tell other people about him. Now, curiously, a few days, in a few days here, Jesus would be out of sight and out of mind. And we often use that terminology, out of sight, out of mind. But with Jesus, he was never actually more present with them than he would be after he arose from the dead. So we're going to turn, uh, turn to John chapter 20, read about this beginning with verse number 19. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word today. Verse number 19 says, The same day at evening, and that is, of course, the same day that Jesus arose from the dead, the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Now pay attention closely to verse number 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we ask you that you might speak to us through this message. Draw our hearts close to you. Maybe learn something from your word. And we just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
If you've been attending Berean Baptist for very long, you've probably noticed that I have a penchant for naming sermons after songs. In this series, uh, in the Gospel of John, I've named several of the sermons that way. Uh, One time I preached Trust and Obey, and of course that is a song that we of Baptists have been singing for many, many years. I, I also named a sermon, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, and that was a hymn that was written several hundred years ago. I preached Thy Precious Bleeding Side. On Wednesday nights, I I titled some of the messages there uh, uh, after songs, Ode to Be Like Thee. That's a sermon that I preached not long ago, Give Him the Glory. And sometimes I I even throw in a country music title every now and then, even though I don't much like country music. But today's title is Breathe on Me, Breath of God. And this actually comes from a hymn that was written uh, by the same title, written by Edwin Hatch in 1878. And the message of that song is it expresses a desire that the Holy Spirit would so fill us as the people of God that God's desires would be our desires and Christ's life would become our life. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about that and about how the Holy Spirit comes upon us and he works in us and he gives us characteristics of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, first of all today, that the Holy Spirit gives us the peace of Jesus. In verse number 19 of our text, it was Sunday evening on the same day of the resurrection. The disciples had gathered together, and perhaps they were in that same room where just three days earlier Jesus had met with them, and they had eaten the Lord's Supper. But the room was very tightly shut up, the windows were closed, the door was locked, and the reason was because the disciples feared. They had been associated with Jesus. And anyone who knew Jesus or was a part of his followers was very, very much hated. The the hatred for Jesus had not abated by this time. And so the disciples were very afraid. And so they hid themselves away. And I think that John is very careful to note for us here. He says the doors were locked, the windows were shut. And it's an amazing thing here that Jesus was able to just appear in that room. He materialized in that room. Now, even though he, he didn't have a, a, a material body like we think about or a body such as we have, it was a resurrected body. And the Bible does tell us that it was a body that could be touched. It was a body that could be seen. But Jesus came and he didn't try to sneak in through a window and he didn't try to get in through the door. The windows and the doors were locked and Jesus just appeared there. So in this body, he was able to pass through stone walls and to pass through a wooden door. Now, we remember here that the disciples are afraid. They locked themselves away. There was fear of discovery. But when Jesus came to them, it was his intention to calm those fears that they had. And so Jesus speaks to them. And the very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth are, Peace be unto you. Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Everything is going to be all right. I want you to have my peace. Well, the words that Jesus spoke... Perhaps you've heard this word before, the word shalom. It actually means peace. And the Jews still use that word today as a greeting, just like we would say hello. Only it's not just a casual greeting or a flippant greeting, like like saying hello like we would. But it really does have behind it the meaning that peace is truly a gift from God. Now, there are two very important ways that as believers, we need to consider the peace that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. First of all, we have peace with God. And peace with God comes from our salvation. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul speaks of the peace of peace with God, and he links that as a result of justification. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification, of course, relates to our salvation in Christ, and peace with God comes to us when we have salvation. And Jesus announces peace here because what he did on the cross just three days earlier was for the purpose of satisfying God's wrath against sin. In six messages that I preached about the crucifixion, about Jesus going to the cross, that theme has been restated over and over again. That the reason that Jesus went to the cross was because of our sins. And Jesus went to pay our sin debt there. And when Jesus went to the cross, he pleased God and he suffered all of God's wrath for everyone who would believe in him. And that was for the purpose that we would not have to suffer ourselves for our sins when we believe in him. So the Bible teaches us that before man is saved, before we come to know Jesus as our personal Savior, we are alienated from God. There is no peace with God. We're enemies of God. And the consequence of that is the impending vengeance and destruction of God in a place called hell. Today, in most churches that you go to, you won't hear preachers talk about hell. People don't like to hear about hell, and so preachers don't preach very often on it. And when they do, sometimes they make a joke about it. And most of the time, whenever you hear the word hell, when do you hear it? In the course of somebody's normal conversation, and they just pass it off as if it's a funny thing or a light thing. But I want to tell you, hell is no laughing matter. Hell is very serious. Hell is God's wrath and his judgment against sin. Health is, a hell is separation from God in a place that the Bible describes burns with fire and brimstone. But the purpose of Jesus going to the cross was to take our punishment and to take our hell for us. And so what Jesus did when he went there was to satisfy God's penalty for sin and thereby he made peace. But there's something very important here that we need to understand and that is that peace only comes upon God's terms and conditions. God is the one who sets the conditions. And no one ever has peace with God unless he comes in full, unconditional surrender to the will and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps we can relate this to an experience that all of us are familiar with. Sixty-two years ago, the battleship Missouri sailed into Tokyo Bay, and aboard that ship was General Douglas MacArthur. The United States had just decisively defeated Japan in in the fightings in the Pacific. And the atomic bomb had been dropped, of course. Thousands of people were killed. And MacArthur was there to offer peace at the surrender of Emperor Hirohito. And at that point, there was nothing at all that Japan could do but to accept this surrender on America's terms. Now, could you imagine for a moment that the leaders of Japan would sit down with MacArthur and they would begin to bargain with him over a peace settlement? And could you imagine them saying to him that we're only going to surrender if you meet our terms and conditions? We're going to do these things our way. Well, if you know anything about MacArthur, and if you know anything at all about the bitter fighting that brought them to that place, then there was no discussion here of if this or if that. Japan must unconditionally surrender, and they must do it on our terms or be completely annihilated. And believe me, the Japanese knew what annihilation meant. 
that bomb had just been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so that, that point had been settled. Now, here is what the Bible is showing us. God's telling us, if you can understand peace in that physical sense, if you can understand it in that way, then you need to apply the same principle to the spiritual. And that is that God does not accept you on your terms. God does not say, and you can't come to God and say, God, if you'll do it this way, if you'll do it my way, if you'll do this for me, then I promise you I'll serve you. No. Peace is total surrender on God's terms. And the only terms that God accepts is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so you come to him and you come through him alone. Now, there are many folks, though, that like to argue the Bible. They don't like the terms and conditions that God has set down. And so they say, well, we want to do things our way. God, we want you to do it our way. We have our own way that we want to be saved. And so they argue over things that we read in the Bible. That's why you have churches that are led into such things as the ordination of women into the ministry. It's why they allow gays and and lesbians to uh, be ordained in ministry. And what they're saying is we don't want things on God's terms. There are many churches that practice sacraments and, and rituals that you must keep in order to be saved. And so people are saying, we want to come on our terms and we want to be saved this way. And God is never going to accept that. You can only come on God's terms as they're revealed in the scripture and through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the wonderful thing about this, uh, though, is that God is not hostile towards us when he offers peace. God is loving and and God is compassionate. He never asks us for any kind of reparations. In fact, there's nothing that you could ever do for God anyway that he would accept. And so he comes and he offers peace, not by what you do for him, but for what he's done for you. And what he's done for you is to give his own son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins. And based upon that, we can have peace with God. Now, this is the free gift of God. And only in salvation will we ever have peace with God. But there's something else that's taught taught here as well. The Holy Spirit also brings us the peace of God. We have the peace of God, and that's our security. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I would remind you that when Paul wrote that scripture in Philippians, he was in prison. And we wonder, how is it that Paul could have peace in his heart while he's in prison? How could he have the peace of God? And what kind of peace is this? Well, the peace is actually security. What it means is freedom from all of our fears and freedom from our anxieties. This is exactly where the disciples were. They were locked away. They were in fear. They were afraid what would happen to them because they had been associated with Jesus. And so when Jesus came and spoke, peace be unto you, that was a wonderful thing. Now, Paul, he was ready to be executed. And yet he had the peace of God. These disciples were just waiting for some word. We're afraid. We're anxious. And Jesus said, peace be unto you. And so when Jesus appeared in that room and he said, peace, it truly was a wonderful experience. We think about all that trauma that they'd been through. I mentioned just a moment ago, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were discussing among themselves. Well, we thought, we did really think that Jesus was the one who could deliver us. He would be the Savior. But now he's died. What's happened to him? He's not the Savior after all. 
And so their hopes were dashed and they had fear and they cowered in fear about what would happen to them. And Jesus appeared to relieve that fear and anxiety. Now today, you may be a Christian and and you are born again. You are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have peace with God. You've been justified from all your sins. You have salvation. But still, as a child of God, you're living in these fears and anxieties. You're still worried about things all the time. Maybe you're worried about your health. Perhaps you're worried about your finances or worried about your family. You may be worried about retirement. What's going to happen when all the money's gone? And what the Bible is trying to tell us here is that the Holy Spirit wants to bring us the peace of God and our total dependence upon Him, our reliance upon Him. That's what actually does bring us the peace of God. That's our security. And the Holy Spirit, when you depend upon Him, He will take all of those fears and anxieties away. Now, do you know that there are people who look at Christians and they begin to wonder about us? They wonder, how do you go through all those things with the kind of spirit that you have? And they look at the problems. Look at the problems that we have. And all of us have problems, don't we? If you're a Christian, you can testify, yes, I do have problems. The only people who don't have problems are pushing up Davies, daisies in the cemetery. Everybody's got problems. But they wonder about this. How, how do Christians do that? How do you endure those health problems? How do you endure suffering in your life? How do you go through the loss of a loved one, a loss of a parent, or the loss of your child? How does a Christian do that? Well, there's a very peculiar scripture in the book of Habakkuk that talks about this. And Habakkuk uh, explains it in, in chapter 3. I'd like you to turn there for just a moment. Uh, if, if you're having trouble finding Habakkuk, it's actually really very easy. You just look between Nahum and Zephaniah. That'll make it easy for you. But I want you to listen to what Habakkuk wrote in Habakkuk chapter 3. You might want to underline this in your Bible. In verses 17 and 18, he wrote, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. Maybe you'd like to have a modern translation of that, so I'll give you one. Though I lost my job today, and the rent is due next week, though my teenage son borrowed the car and ran over a fire hydrant, and though the two-year-old fell and broke out two front teeth, and though my mother-in-law is coming to visit for three weeks, and though my gout and my Versailles is acting up, Yet still I will rejoice because I have my salvation. That's the peace that God brings. No matter what goes wrong, the Holy Spirit comes to you and he gives you the security of knowing when all else fails, God's always faithful. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction which is but for a moment. And I've always been amazed at that statement, our light affliction, considering all that Paul went through. But he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so God comes to us, the Holy Spirit comes And he gives the peace of Jesus. So Jesus came to the disciples and he said, Peace be unto you. 
But that's not all that we learn from the passage because next we see the Holy Spirit gives us the personality of Jesus. Anybody here ever taken a personality test? Anybody ever do that? You know, I, I did that. You know, personality tests, they try to find out whether you're an assertive person or perhaps you're an overachiever, whether you're a visionary, uh, detail-oriented, or, or maybe you're just totally neurotic. And they're trying to find that out. Well, I took one of those personality tests, and no, it didn't turn out that I was totally neurotic, but it did, it did reveal some things about me. My personality profile turned out that I think that I'm right. No secret at all to my wife. My personality says I like things done my way. And that's no secret to my wife or the church secretary. I pay very close attention to detail. I like things spelled correctly. And even though I don't always use perfect grammar, I do like to see it written rightly on paper. And so when you sit down to write an email that takes you three minutes... It takes me 45 minutes because I've got to check it and recheck it and make sure everything is right. And if you ever see it, a mistake up on the outline on the board here, that's not me, that's Jason. I don't make mistakes. <laughs> but here's the thing. You, you might have to. You might have to take a test to find out about your personality. But if you want to find out about the personality of Jesus, you don't have to look very far because it's all written right here. The Bible tells us exactly the personality of Jesus. It gives us all the criteria. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes into our lives and he implements the personality of Jesus and he presses that personality in us as we live for him. Well, how does he do that? Well, first, the Holy Spirit resides as Jesus in a believer. You see, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your body. You're never separated from the Holy Spirit. He's always there. And that's why when Paul learned some things that were going on in the Corinthian church, he learned about some things that were happening there and things that they were doing. And he says, what? When he heard it, he said, what? What's going on? What have you done? And I can just hear him saying that. Let me read the whole phrase to you, the whole verses. It says, what? In 1 Corinthians, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the Bible is teaching that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when it says that, it's the very same thing as saying, Jesus is in you. And whenever you do something with your body that's unrighteous or unholy, then you are defiling the temple of God because the Holy Spirit lives in your temple, your body. Now, I'm afraid to say this, but there are many, many Christians who get their bodies involved in some very nasty stuff. They do. Is Jesus really in you? Well, the Bible says that he is. And it's not something that I made up. This is a mystery, the Bible says. It wasn't fully explained until the Holy Spirit came, until Jesus said the Holy Spirit is coming to be with you and be in you. This was a mystery. And Paul talks about that in Colossians. He says, The mystery which hath been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, listen, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. What a marvelous thing. 
I can think about this as, as Christ for me, and I think about Christ being near me and Christ being with me. But when I think about Christ in me, that's a totally different thing. Now, the great thing for these disciples, the reality of it is that Jesus comes to bring comfort, and the peace that would come into their hearts is because Christ would be in them now in a totally different and better way. You see, when Jesus was in the flesh, he could only be in one place at one time. He could only be one place at one time. You remember when Martha and Mary spoke to Jesus about the death of their brother Lazarus, and they said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. So Jesus was only in one place at one time physically. But now Jesus promised them something better. For the disciples, there is never again going to be a time when Jesus is absent from them. He would always be with them, and he would be in them, and that's the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is Jesus in you. Now remember, wherever you go, wherever you go, you take Jesus with you. And you need to be careful about some of the places you go, because you go some places he doesn't want to go. So the Holy Spirit is in you, but there's still more here because he's not just a silent presence that sits idly by in your life and nobody can tell that he's there. How do you tell what a person is on the inside? Their personality dictates it, doesn't it? I mean, what comes out on their personality, that tells you what's on the inside. And the same thing is true with Jesus. When he is on the inside, Jesus will be reflected in your personality. So how do we know that Jesus is on the inside? Well, that's the next thing. He reveals Jesus through a believer. Now, he resides as Jesus in a believer, but the Holy Spirit also reveals Jesus through a believer. What you are on the inside displays on the outside. Now, you know how the Bible terms that? The Bible talks about it as fruit. The display is called fruit. How do you tell that an apple tree is an apple tree? Some people are better at this than I am. I mean, they can look at the leaf and they'd say, well, that, that's an apple tree. I'm not that good. I have to see the apple. And when I see the apple, I say, that's an apple tree. And, and that fruit tells you the internal essence of that tree. Well, how is Jesus revealed in us? In the same way, he's revealed by the fruit. And the great thing about this is, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to find out about it. You don't have to be a horticulturist to find out about this fruit or an arborist to see what kind of tree that it is. How many of you have a Bible program at home on your, on your computer? A Bible program? Just about everybody does. You go home and you type in these words, fruit of the Spirit. Do that when you get home. I'll save you some time because I already did it. And I typed in fruit of the Spirit and up popped up Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lust. Now, now listen to this, because this proves that I'm not just hyping this whole thing up and giving you my opinion about it all. Jesus said, here is the way that you will identify People will identify whether you are one of my followers, you will have these kinds of fruit. And this will prove what I am. Now, we just pick out one of those fruits in the list. Let's pick out one. Let's pick out the one of love, for instance. And what does Jesus say about love? 
Well, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And listen, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. I can't make that any easier than what Jesus said. If you have love as one of your fruits, you're a love tree. And the inner essence in you that produces that love is none other than Jesus in you. And Jesus is revealed by the fruit. So, if the fruit of your life is bitterness and hatred, if your fruit is other things like anger and malice, or if your fruit is just plain old contrariness, that doesn't show that Jesus is in you. That's the wrong kind of fruit. Now, here's the problem with many people. Many people think that the way to become like Jesus is just simple imitation. I just act like and do things like Jesus did, and that's what Christianity is all about. And so people will have soup kitchens, and they have humanitarian aid. Nothing wrong with those things. They have hospitals that they build. Lots of people give money to charities. And they do all these good deeds. And they think that by doing all of these good deeds, that all of that will somehow add up to the same thing as being a Christian. And so people live and die without Jesus. And people look at their lives and they think, well, all in all, you know, that's, that's pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. And they base it upon the fact that they did some good things. But you can't imitate Jesus. I've never seen a peach tree imitate an apple tree. Have you? I'm sure Les back there could tell us that he's never seen corn growing on a tomato vine. Go to his house and there's no corn growing on his tomato vines. But I have seen some good imitations. I've seen a mushroom and a toadstool. They look pretty much the same, don't they? And if you don't know the difference, you can be in big trouble. One, some people think is pretty good. I don't happen to be one of them, but some people like to eat it. But the other one, it will kill you. You can't imitate Jesus and have the real thing. The only way that you have Jesus in you is by trusting him as your personal Lord and Savior. And then when you do, the Holy Spirit comes and he comes on the inside of you and he's the presence of Jesus in you that enables you to have the personality of Jesus. Now, I have one more characteristic I'd like to talk about that's given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the power of Jesus. Verse number 22 is really a preview of a coming attraction. It says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Pentecost. Most of you are familiar with that. Fifty days away from this time would be the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the Holy Spirit would come in a very special way. He would come and empower the disciples to be great witnesses for Jesus. But here we see that Jesus breathes on them. And the breath that he breathes reminds us of that scripture in Acts chapter 2 where it talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says he came as a mighty rushing wind. And Jesus breathing on them kind of reminds us of that wind that came on Pentecost. Well, what actually happens though here? What happens here? Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Well, did the Holy Ghost come upon them then or did he come upon them at Pentecost? Well, one thing we don't want to do, we don't want to misunderstand this and think that suddenly on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit showed up. 
He was never here before, and he showed up on the day of Pentecost. That's not true. The Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit has always been here. It's just that on the day of Pentecost, he came in a new and special way and empowered the disciples at that time. But the presence of the Holy Spirit was always there. And so I think that these these disciples, they have the presence of the Holy Spirit right here in John 22. Then later on the day of Pentecost, they had him in a new way. Now, let me show you a couple of things and we through. The Holy Spirit gives us the power of Jesus. And first, he gives us the power to awaken the forgiven. Now, in verse 21, Jesus said, As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, then you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the great commission of Christ. And that's where he told us to be his witnesses. He said, go in the world, preach the gospel, baptize people, teach them all things that I have commanded. Well, what we have right here in John is John's version of that. Now, he only states it in one sentence. He records the words of Jesus, so send I you. And the power to be a witness for Christ is the power that comes from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus. You don't give the message in your own power. Now, unfortunately, too many of us want to be witnesses in our own power, and we do our own thing, and we're really not witnesses at all. Here's the thing. If Jesus is not front and center of your life at all times, you'll never have a desire to be his witness. If Jesus is not the driving force behind what you do, if you don't get up in the morning with Jesus and go through the day with Jesus and go to bed at night with Jesus, then you don't have the driving power that will make you a witness for Christ. If he's not the thing that you get up with in the morning and having heaven on your mind when you go to bed at night, you'll never have a desire to turn over to that co-worker that you have at work and say to them, do you know if you died tonight whether or not you would go to heaven? And if you don't have Jesus as the driving force, if you don't have the Holy Spirit filling and permeating your life in this way, you'll never have the desire to talk to your mom who's lost or your dad who's lost or your family or your children or your, rel- your relatives, your friends. You won't do it because the driving force is not there. But when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you do have the desire. Now, some of you folks, I'm afraid you're tired, worn-out Christians. It's just a fact. You're tired, worn-out Christians. And you come to church with a scowl on your face, and you come and criticize everything that goes on. Nothing makes you happy. I have a question for you. If you can't be happy in here, how are you going to be happy out there? If you don't have the Spirit in here, where the presence of the Spirit we feel is, how are you ever going to have the presence of the Spirit out there? It just doesn't happen. Now, some of you, are, you're going through your life here and, and you come to church on Sundays and you think, well, that's my church work. I've done God's work because I came to church on Sunday. Be aware of something. Worship is not your church work. Worship is a privilege of Christians. Witnessing is the work of the church. That's what God's called us to do. So when you leave here, when you leave this place, that's really where the work starts. We're not doing work here. The work starts out there. And when you leave here, the service is over, I said before, but the work has just begun. Now, that leads me to the final point, and that is the Holy Spirit gives us the power to announce forgiveness. See, the Holy Spirit has given you a message. When Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, he followed that up with, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. 
I wish we had time to spend more time with this and just go into the details of this verse because this is actually a verse that the Roman Catholics use to give their priests the power to absolve sins. And what they say is, is that if the priest forgives you of your sin, then he lets God know that your sin has been forgiven. And so therefore, if the priest forgives it, then God will forgive it also. That's completely backwards. Completely backwards. If we look at the tense of this and understand what's going on here, what Jesus is saying, forgiveness has already been obtained. Jesus has already brought forgiveness. And he says to you as a believer, you're to go out and announce to the world, forgiveness has been obtained by the cross. That's your job, to be a witness. Now, only God forgives sins. You can't forgive sins and neither can anybody else. Only God does it. But what you can do, you can announce it. You can tell people. You can be a witness. You can go out and be the one who bears glad tidings of good things. So here's the thing that you need to do. You need to be a preacher. Not, not, you don't need to come up here and preach. I'll take care of that for you. So you don't have to do that. But you need to be a preacher. And it's far better for you to be a preacher at work than it is right here. It's far better for you to be a preacher with your family and your friends than it is for you to stand up here where I'm standing today. God hasn't called you to do that. But he has called you to be the preacher out there. And that's what you need to do. Now, here's the thing about it. Jesus said, so send I you. And when you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you and you feel that presence of the Spirit, this is something that you will enjoy. You know, lots of people hate to go to work. Some people, oh man, Monday morning's here again. I've got to go to work and they hate it. But when you have this job that God has given it, you don't dread this. You begin to enjoy it. But then also you realize something as you enjoy it. And here it is. It's the last statement on your listening sheet today. The Holy Spirit did not fill you for enjoyment. He fills you for employment. He's given you a job to do. And his job is to be a witness. Well, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples on several occasions. But then came the time when he was going to ascend into heaven... And when he did, he reiterated the words of his great commission. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Notice there, Jesus said, You will be witnesses of me. Notice what he did not say. You will be witnesses of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. And there are many churches today who want to be witnesses of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus never said that. And when people go out and become witnesses of the Holy Spirit, they aren't doing Jesus' work. Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit will not magnify himself. He will magnify me. He always magnifies the Son. Now the question for you today is... Has the Holy Spirit breathed his life into you? Is the Holy Spirit present with you? Are you connected to him? Is he on the inside of you? And do you bear the fruits of his personality? Now, as I close today, I want you to look on the back of your listening sheet because I have a personality test for you here. And don't worry about it because you don't have to have a number two pencil to fill this in. I'll accept anything. 
but I want you to, to look at this. This is your personality test, and you need to determine whether you really have the personality of Jesus. And the first question is, my life, or first statement, my life is characterized by anxiety or peace. My life is filled with anxiety or peace. Which one? You need to fill in that, that circle there. Number two is, the dominant personality in me is my own or it's Jesus? Answer that question honestly. The dominant personality in me is my own or Jesus? And fill that in. Number three, I am dependent upon my natural abilities or the supernatural abilities of Jesus. That'll give you some idea about whether the Holy Spirit is really working through you and whether or not you really show and exhibit the personality of Jesus. Now, maybe what you really need to do today after answering those questions and answering them honestly is that you need to make a life adjustment today. Something needs to change in you. The hymn writer who wrote, Breathe on me, breath of God, said, Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. That's what happens when a person really has the Holy Spirit living in his heart. He wants to do whatever Jesus would have him do. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we thank you for the lessons that we learn here. And Lord, I just pray that every person here today would make the right decision where they would really know, am I living the way that you want me to live? Is the Holy Spirit in me? First, have I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Because we know, Lord, that the Holy Spirit never lives in anyone who hasn't first trusted you personally. I pray, Lord, that there might be someone here today that would realize that today they need to trust you personally as their Savior to take all their sins away. And then next, Lord, do we have the personality of Jesus? Once we've been saved, are the fruits of Jesus in our life? And maybe there is another Christian here today who says, no, I haven't been showing the fruits of the Spirit. I haven't been doing this. I live in anxiousness. I live in fear. But I would really like to have the peace of God. Would you come to them today? Would you speak to their hearts and show them that total dependence upon you is the only place to have the peace of God? Blessing this invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.